Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. All right, something's coming. Don't know what it is, but it is going to be great. It turns out to be that we are rebranding today. Our show is rebranding, which means you're going to hear a different tagline from time to time. You're going to see a different visual appearance when you look up the podcast or go on the website. And we've also been through kind of a soul-searching process. I don't know if we exactly searched our soul. We searched something. Like, what is this thing? What is this thing that we do every day? We ought to know, but do we? And do we know it well enough to be able to explain it in terms of visual appearance, slogans, anything else? Oh, we're launching new features, too, like a newsletter and a new Saturday show and other stuff will be happening as we merrily roll along. But today I want you to hear some new thoughts and some slightly older thoughts about the whole idea of rebranding anything. So if you listen to this show a lot, you might have heard me mention rebranding, relaunching, something we're doing, which we barely understand. But whatever it is, it's happening today. And the one thing I want to tell you before we go into any of this is we are not rebranding in the sense that we are going to do a different kind of show. Yeah, I did float the rumor it was going to be all sea shanties. That's not true. We're not doing that. We're not changing the show. It's it's a different kind of thinking that goes on. And a while back, we did a whole episode about the whole idea of rebranding. We're going to share some parts of that episode with you today as you get ready for the just incandescent excitement that will be involved in absorbing our new branding, which will be, well, it's already up now. You can go look at it. It's at ctpublic.org slash Colin, or you can check on the Colin McEnroe show in your podcast feed or uh, on our social media accounts. I think on Facebook and Twitter, we're always Colin McShow. You may go out to the chicken coop and see that there's some things out there that has to do with our brand. I really don't know how many places it's going to surface. But yes, there's this idea of rebranding, and it could mean any number of things. There certainly are some very prominent examples of rebranding. Philip Morris became Altria in 2003. I wonder why Philip Morris thought they needed to rebrand. Can't imagine. And there's some bad examples. Radio Shack tried to become The Shack. Take that, Shaquille O'Neal. And they didn't make it, basically. (laughs) Tribune Media famously tried to become Tronk. Tronk kill newspaper with club. Also not a great idea. Dunkin' Donuts just turned into Dunkin'. I don't even know if anybody noticed that. Teams change, of course. The Washington Redskins became the Washington football team. The Washington football team is now the Washington Commanders. You know, you get the idea. Google has a parent company called Alphabet, which nobody ever mentions. Facebook, maybe people mention Meta a little bit more, but that Meta came in in 2021. That's how new that name is. And then there are people, particularly in music, people like Madonna, Lady Gaga, David Bowie, Snoop Dogg, Prince, who like they are brands and then they rebrand and then they become a squiggly little symbol. And it just, it's part of the chameleon-like or protean nature of that artist. So with all that in mind, and you can just see I'm brimming with excitement because, you know, we have rebranded. And right at the end of the show, you're going to hear the people who probably had the most to do with the, the creative part of the changes that we're making. But before we get to all that, 
we are going to talk to our favorite ad guy, Patrick Dugan, executive creative director at Adams at Night at Avon. So at least my understanding of rebranding is that it doesn't necessarily have to result in actual new name for a company or a product and not as much as it has to somehow or other constitute a reflection on the message that the company or product is sending about itself. That's right. I would say that the name change is probably the most dramatic rebranding that that you could have. We see all kinds of rebrandings, everything from just like the positioning of the brand or the company to taglines, logos, the color of the company, their identity, the typography they use, and the voice. And typically, whose idea is this? Do companies come to advertising firms to say, you know, we want to rebrand? Do they get kind of spurred on to do that by somebody else telling them you need to rebrand? Uh, Yeah, I would say it falls into generally three categories. There's either the times have changed and they recognize that and that they need to kind of change with them, or the company themselves has changed in some dramatic way. Or maybe in the case of Facebook, they screwed up or they're under some sort of scrutiny and they want to change pretty dramatically, pretty quickly. I guess the other thing that you want to do is rebrand successfully. There's some rebrands that are probably doomed. Radio Shack was probably going to go the way of the Dodo no matter what they did. <laughs> uh, and, and you know, with something like Tribune, I don't know what they were thinking with Tronk. What makes it really, really successful? How does it, when, when do you know a rebrand is successful and what are the qualities of that? You know pretty quickly and you want to make sure that it's just authentic and true and that it's it's based on something real, which is why you know the, a lot of the ones that fail are the ones that the company hasn't done the right kind of research and, and looked into it and they've just made that decision at the top and kind of forced it on people. Where the ones that really work well, they do their research, they find out what the public actually thinks about the brand and what they should be and, and all that. And, and not to mention their employees, a lot, of, a lot of companies forget about their internal audiences and you got to make sure they're on board with it too. And you know, the companies that do all that work up front and, and think about all that are the ones that are that are successful with it. And then we talked to our old friend Mike Pesco, who hosts the daily podcast The Gist, which he rebranded and relaunched a while back. We also we're gonna to talk to Pesco about any big move we make. Now, the only reason that I'm interested or was interested in participating in something called rebranding, about which I've had several different changes of heart, I might add, is that it's not rebranding like Philip Morris or something like The Last Refuge of Scoundrels. It's rebranding, just rethinking the message that we tell about our show. It's that it's an interesting thing to do kind of internally. It's interesting to me to do it in conversations with myself, sitting alone in a dark room, but also talking to the producers, the other people who work on this show, right? Because that's what you want to do sometimes is say, am I doing this show in a way that I'm not even wholly conscious of? Probably. In other words, are there things that ultimately wind up being the sum of what the show is that I wouldn't even really be able to enumerate? If I sat down and tried to consciously do it and then you have to ask yourself, is that a good process to bring that unconscious stuff to the surface? Maybe something that you were doing intuitively and by the gut in a way that was helpful to you. Yes. Forgot who it was. An English philosopher said, first we make our habits, then they make us. 
That's something that the basketball coach, Shaka Smart, would tell his players. And it seems, and I told my kids that, but as adults in life, I mean, what are we? What is our intuition and what is our consciousness? We want it maybe to be more than the sum total of the ingrained habits, the ruts that we've worn into the earth. And if we keep following those, well, just listen to the term, the ruts, is that who we are? So it is, it is a good exercise to step back and ask that very question. But the other thing I think about rebranding is, you know, it should be a little painful. I mean, think about how painful it is to the cow. (laughs) (laughs) And so it shouldn't be, if you constantly rebrand, I guess you become Madonna, you know, that's, she's the one person whose brand is to constantly rebrand. But if you constantly rebrand, then really, who are you? So it should be taken not lightly. I also have a huge suspicion of it as a corporate exercise. I think mostly it's like, oh, great, Facebook is meta and they're still, you know, playing fast and loose with our data and threatening, if not our democracy, certainly the Tigray region of Ethiopia. So there sometimes is just the word itself invokes cynicism, suspicion in me. Oh, yeah. I mean, I I do. I've been saying it's the last refuge of, of scoundrels. And I mean, th- that is one of its purposes, ultimately, is to try to conceal something about certain companies and about certain other enterprises. That's not the only thing. You know, that's not the only reason to do it. I mean, one of the other reasons to do it, I think, is am I communicating effectively about what it is that I actually am trying to do? But I think also, and this is another, or maybe it's the same way that you and I are not all that different, Part of our approach is to be pretty unpredictable. At least that's what we tell ourselves, I think, you know, that, you know, yes, we will do a show about towels. Yes, we will do a show about, you know, terrible acts of anti-Semitism in two different periods of history. This is the same program. It'll do those two shows, you know, in, in within some adjacency to one another, too. And you're the same way, I think. You know, you'll do very, very funny takes on stuff or tackle some pretty whimsical topic. But the meat of what you do, I think, also is very serious and analytical. And so that's an argument for like just ah, not really wanting to brand. Yes. And I think I, I, I came to this conclusion after writing a what if book, which had 20 different authors. And there were so many different there were sports what ifs, but some were comical and some were, you know, faux encyclopedia essays and some were Jerry Tarkinian's speech to the Hall of Fame. So many different styles. And that was satisfying to me and the readers of the book, but I would say the relatively few readers of the book. And I was talking to a creator of an anthology TV show, one of the Duplass brothers. I, I don't want to get which one wrong, who does that uh, it was, it anthology. Was, it was Zeppo, Zeppo Duplass, I think. It was, yeah. That's right. Chico Duplass told me that he really was trained on the piano. Yeah, so he does this <laughs> anthology TV show for HBO. It's really incredibly satisfying to him, but it's not a huge hit. And I do think the kind of things that we do are inherently, they can be great and our listeners or the audience will love them. But I wonder if they have a ceiling because mostly the idea of the one thing and everyone knows what the thing is, that is the dominant form of media, probably the dominant thing that we as people give our attention to. I mean, when you think of the Muppets, all the iconic Muppets are one color, <laughs> one shape, and they all have their one major character trait. And once you start getting very eclectic Muppets who could do a lot of things, they sometimes become niche or background players. But on the other, other hand, part of the joy of the Muppets is that they aren't just one thing. Yeah, I mean, the individual Muppet is one thing, right. but the, the Muppet Collective. The Muppet Collective. 
the Muppet Borg. Yeah. And so, I mean, and, and that's a lot of what you and I are trying, both trying to do is to try to do a show. I think you're absolutely right that if, if you want to guarantee a certain kind of audience and a certain level of enthusiasm, you know, do like a British baking show or, or whatever, you know, I mean, a show that has a preordained focus and topic. You're going to get everybody who ever wanted that kind of show to exist and maybe a few other people who are pleasantly surprised at how interesting it is. Yeah. But I also observe that, you know, there's this uh, creative impulse, especially in the beginning. Let's get back to Letterman, right? In, it, in their first couple seasons, they were intent on breaking the form. And they would do shows where he, one show where he infamously refused to go to a commercial. And they would do an entire show, you know, not just with monkey cams or tiger cams, but, you know, through the perspective of, I think, a, a backstage guest. They would, they were intent on breaking the form. And they, that quickly went away or somewhat quickly went away because I do think that in order to tell people what you are and to be an established brand, you can't keep on the fly remaking your brand. Here's another thing I'll throw out though. I think maybe this is true, maybe this is not. You and I are suspicious of the idea of rebranding is that we remember the rebranding that doesn't work and when it doesn't work, we call it rebranding or when there's a question if it's going to work, we call it rebranding. But when it does work, we just call it the brand. And we forget that, you know, Netflix was even Quickster or some DVD service for a while or contemplated it being. It's just Netflix. And, you know, branding is one of those things that the good is oft interred in its successes. That was Mike Pesca, who hosts the independent daily podcast, The Gist. So to get into the way rebranding shows up in the music world, we talked to our friend Brendan J. Sullivan, a producer and DJ best known for his work with Lady Gaga. So I certainly saw, as a Lower East Side Seamster, the first time I met Lady Gaga, I believe she was carrying a demo CD, and it said on it, the front, the Stephanie German Band. <laughs> and it was supposed to be like a Strokes, early 2000 girl rock band. And that worked for her in that it got her to her next step and then her next step. We don't really think of Lady Gaga as like a rocker or the leader of a, you know, a band. But there was a producer at the time on the lookout for, he was trying to do what Kim Fowley did with The Runaways and with Joan Jett, where he did and just formed an, an all-girl rock band to try and sell that to record labels. He was trying to do that at the same time. A scout working for him found Gaga at a, at a singer's showcase where she did one song by herself on the piano. And that was what led to her very first record deal. Now, over the years, I've seen Lady Gaga do many transformations and uh, people compared her to Madonna at first. And I would say that Gaga and Madonna both stepped into the role as shapeshifter right around the time when they needed people to think of them differently. So Madonna used to have these big, huge costume changes, but then she would have them in real life. And it was around the same time she was trying to really get the world to accept her as an actor. You know, she was in Evita and a bunch of other movies at the time. These people are people who want to shed the image that you've stuck them with so they can grow from there. It sounds exhausting. It sounds like just a climate in which <laughs> which identity is is so fungible and so malleable and so changing all the time. And I think that's also closely mirrored in the world of hip hop. I mean, part of the fundamental <laughs> bargain of hip hop is you're you're not going to start out with your regular name anyway most of the time. You know, you're going to yeah. you're going to create a nom de guerre, you know, and then if you're Sean Combs, you're going to change it like six times, right? Yeah, I would say the uh, the identity fluidity in hip hop is is the hip hop equivalent of getting bangs. 
you know, it's just like you get the itch to, to move on, to, to look a little different, to feel a little different. Michelle Obama's <laughs> second term opens up, bangs right yeah. away instead. New haircut, new life. Yeah. As the old guy, I should say, this isn't an entirely new phenomenon. And for example, Frank Sinatra briefly retired from singing and then came back as old blue eyes. Old blue eyes is back, which is something nobody had ever called him. (laughs) It was a a complete invention, a a reinvention of self and and really what amounted to a kind of rebranding. So, I mean, that does go on. And and I guess sometimes the question is, yeah, am am I changing so I can repurpose? myself? Am I changing who I am, my name, my identity, my style, or or so that I can exploit more opportunities? Or, uh, like, I don't really know, nobody really knows what his royal badness was really doing when he decided he was going to be the artist formerly known as Prince, and he was going to have this weird little symbol. I I felt like they were saying, if you want Prince, this is how it's going to (laughs) be. You know, see, no one said, no, never mind, you're, you're Prince. I mean, we're calling him Prince now because we're, we're, we're speaking out loud. Right. <laughs> so it was a further laying down of the law and laying down uh, of limits and, and talking about who, who was in control of this transaction, as if there had ever yeah. been any doubt. I also wonder for artists, you know, sometimes that that constant restlessness. You think of somebody like Bowie, who really did have multiple incarnations, you know, radically different looks, different kinds of music to accompany those looks. And I think what we see when we gaze back at that is just a chameleon, a a restless artistic intellect that wasn't really comfortable doing the same stuff over and over again. You know who I had a great conversation with this one? Questlove, the drummer from The Roots. Yeah. What Questlove said that stuck with me the most there, he said to me, as an artist, you're always starting at square zero. Yeah. I mean, if you're really committed to creativity, to invention, that is your attitude that you're always starting at zero. I think we don't have to look very mm-hmm. far to find examples of people who have no intention of doing that whatsoever and just sure. you know, and plan to keep just sort of burping out burps that are pretty similar. Sim- yeah, pretty similar to their to their previous burps. As I look at artists who have rebranded or or transformed in meaningful ways, one of the things they do is think about their present. Another thing they do is think about their future. But the other thing they do is they think about the past and, and they begin to think about the past once they've become very successful in the present. And you can sort of well, you can start with Lady Gaga. I mean, her collaboration with Tony Bennett, where suddenly, you know, mm-hmm. she's out on stage singing and and I, jazz vocals are something that I actually do know a lot about, singing a very credible version of Lush Life, which is one hell of a tough song to sing. And you just sort of think, this is somebody who's decided that the past matters, you know, and, and there's a way in which all of these people, one of the things that they can do when they rebrand, when they change, is add a little bit of the past into their very forward-looking art. I think that's uh, something people are embracing as more vital now. And I see it in my, I do see it in my TikTok feed. I will say that because a lot of the chefs that I had trained with when I was trying to get a restaurant job, when I was like 20, when I just wanted, you know, some cash and, and to be able to go out at night and see all my favorite bands. A lot of them had been classically trained and they had favorite chefs. They had, they had a story of hanging out with Jacques Pepin and something like that. But then those people may have taken a break to try and remain relevant rather than look to their past. And that's why we have so many Pierre Freni, Julia Childs, and Jack Pepin all at one point wrote a diet book, you know, like a <laughs> low-fat cookbook to fit in in the 70s and 80s. And I, I think that loses its sense of a, a distinctive past, maybe a, a reliable past. 
And I think that in there is part of it is, is these people understanding that they are part of a legacy and not, not, not to take the credit away from the people they looked up to when they were fans. That was Brendan J. Sullivan, a writer, producer, and DJ, and now a food history TikTok personality. Talk about rebranding. We're going to take a fundraising break here. But when we come back, we will look specifically at our own rebranding. First, with a conversation with Irene Papoulis from 2021, when we were just starting the process of rebranding. That seems like a very long time ago, somehow. And then with the designers who worked on the new visual identity that we're launching today. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. So we did a show about rebranding right around the time that we had started the process of thinking about rebranding ourselves, which happened to be right around the time Facebook had rebranded as Meta. And for that show, we talked to Irene Papoulis, who's a friend of the show. She was on the first show ever that we did. I mean, not the first radio show ever. Because, I don't know, Irene's a friend of mine, and she asks good questions, and she is sort of she's sort of our therapist. She's our show psychotherapist. And so we talked, I talked with Irene when we were thinking about this process, and we were all kind of skeptical but intrigued, too. And we're going to run most of that conversation as it happened in November of 2021. Okay. Hello. Well, when I first heard you say on the air that you were just in passing, that you were rebranding the show, I thought, oh no, you know, like what, how could it not be the Colin McEnroe show? So I'm wondering what caused you to want to even rebrand in the first place. So this wasn't necessarily something that I sought out. It was something where our marketing department and other related entities here at the company want to work with us on what they call rebranding. Now, that can be a slippery and elusive term. I think to a lot of us, it means, oh, rebranding, like Facebook comes up with meta. But I guess that's not all that really kind of goes into rebranding. Yeah, I mean, if anyone should be called meta, maybe it would be your show, uh, not (laughs) Facebook. But um, I mean, and I do see, you know, like with a college, for example, you know, sometimes rebranding just means what do we do really well and how can we highlight it more so that it'll draw people to us? You know, like the first thing that comes to mind is the 
what you have written on your website that's about the sublime and the ridiculous being closely related, you know? And it seems to me that that's really what does characterize your show. And I can't imagine anything besides that that would really work as a way to characterize what you do. Yeah, I mean, and I think for us, it's an opportunity to, to have a conversation about what we do. And the show changes and evolves. 2009 was when we first went on the air. You know, that show is really, really different from the shows that we do in the year 2021. So is there a way to talk to people about how we are changing. I agree the thing about the sublime and the ridiculous is certainly in there somewhere, but it's not the only part of the story. How would you characterize the change? Uh, you know, the, what have you evolved into, would you say? Well, in a couple of different ways. One thing that we haven't talked about too much to the public is we've moved more and more towards becoming a podcast. I mean, all the other shows that are produced by this radio station are broadcast shows with a podcast dimension. We're actually more and more, if you look at the numbers, a podcast that happens to also have a broadcast dimension. So that may mean all kinds of different things. We haven't really had a deep conversation about what it means. It may just change some of our internal practices and not change what we say to the outside world. But the other thing, and you know this very well, Irene, is that this show just isn't just me. It's a whole bunch of different producers working on it together and bringing different aspects of themselves and drawing out maybe different aspects of me. This is a little bit like nailing Quicksilver to the wall. I mean, trying to figure out what this show is. So, I mean, you know, I don't want the world to think we're just a bunch of nerds who get interested in you know, these very esoteric kinds of questions. On the other hand, I don't want people to forget our determination to be very eclectic in our approach. But a lot of it also, I mean, the reason that I'm more willing to go along with this process than I might have otherwise been, because I've always thought of rebranding as to steal a line from Mark Twain, the last refuge of scoundrels. It's kind of like, you know, it's like Facebook. Oh, yeah, we got to rebrand because we screwed up so bad. But you're also right, what you said earlier, which is what if there are things that we're doing that we're not communicating very well about to the public? And maybe we're not even communicating very well internally among ourselves about those things. And that process interests me a lot. Yeah, and it, it interests me too, actually, because I was thinking I have tried to describe your show to people, especially those who don't live in Connecticut. And they're, you know, like the word eclectic is definitely a big part of it, but there it's hard to explain to people why that is that that's so great, you know, a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Well, okay, but why is that interesting? You know, people want something to hold on to when they hear the word eclectic. And I have to say, Colin, that you are the thing that holds it all together. And that's why it's called the Colin McEnroe show, you know, and so it is a certain sensibility. And so maybe it's a, it's the show has a sensibility that has to do with your sensibility, which is a really interesting combination of the ability to be really funny and the ability to take things very seriously, you know? And so it goes back to that combination. Maybe it's not even the sublime and the ridiculous, because that just sounds We've heard that before so many times, but silliness connected to seriousness, I don't know. That doesn't sound very exciting, but I think it kind of is. Yeah. I, you know, one thing that I, in the process that we're about to go through, one thing I want to push back against, like I get what you just said, and there's some reality to it, that the, the common thread that runs through this, at least as far as the listener is concerned, the idea that we could take something that seems 
like maybe even kind of a bad idea and do something really interesting with it. I mean, in the listener's mind, it probably is me, the host. Now, I actually think the reality of it is much more complicated. And what's happening on the show often is me giving somebody permission to and an encouragement to try something that might get shouted down in other kinds uh, of, of show prep meetings for other kinds of radio shows. And I'll just give a concrete example. When uh, Jonathan McPants, who's been with us, who had been with us in some other less full-fledged permanent forms, when he became an actual full-time producer on our show, the first meeting that we had with him, the first staff meeting he attended, he brought up the idea of doing a show about dioramas. Dioramas, just to remind people, are those kinds of museum exhibits where the you know glass usually encloses some scene of you know the, the Laurentian Mountains or something with beavers running around with Native Americans or something. Anyway, my reaction was that's a terrible idea. We should do it. I mean, it really doesn't really work as a radio idea, so we should definitely do that idea. And, you know, but then Jonathan's the one who really has to make it work after that. All right. But it's also, I mean, I guess I have to say from the listener's perspective that those people are interesting because you have a good eye for people who are interesting and you appreciate them, you know, and I even feel that as a panelist on the nose that you'll, you'll sort of put me in a position where I feel more comfortable just being quirkier than I might otherwise have felt comfortable being. I think that's really interesting. I, I, I like that idea. I, this is a show that I, I've been saying this a couple of times recently in staff meetings. This is a show also that runs off relationships more than most public radio shows. And by that, I mean, yeah, you've been on the nose a lot of times, but you've also done other things, including the thing you're doing right now. You know, and, and look, just a few days ago, from when I'm talking right now anyway, we did a show about punctuation and we had on it Julia Pastel and Raquel Benedict. Raquel's been a regular nose panelists of late. Julia's worked with our show in all kinds of different capacities. These are people we know. So, you know, in addition to the guest that we had who was from England and who'd written a book about punctuation, we had these two other people whom we know. And, and yeah, I sort of know a lot of people who are on the show pretty frequently well enough to kind of treat this a little bit more like an ensemble project. And, you know, where I'm more, much more excited, I, I think, when somebody you know, when, when one of the panelists, well, just before we even started recording this conversation, I told you about a thing that, that you did on one of the shows that just has caused me endless amounts of delight, even up to the very moment. And and I think, you know, that idea of having a show that, yeah, we have a lot of guests on who we've never spoken to before, but we have a lot of people on, too, who are on a lot, you know, and you sort of know their moves, they don't, you know their rhythms. You people on the nose, you start to know each other's moves and rhythms a little bit, too. And I think that's one of the distinct pleasures of our show. Absolutely. Sort of like putting people in motion because you can see sometimes maybe you can see things that or you even collectively, not even just Colin, you, but can see that people have the capacity to do certain things that maybe even they wouldn't necessarily know they could do that. I think that is part of the sensibility of the of the show. It's, you know, from a listener's point of view also. Well, listen, as usual, you have asked really thoughtful questions and you've made really thoughtful observations. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. You might have noticed in that conversation from way back in November of 2021 that the words esoteric and eclectic came up to describe the show. And those wound up being very, very important words for us as we got more seriously into the meat of the process of trying to understand our show well enough to tell a branding story about it. And you'll hear more about that as we go along. But right now, we'll take a very quick break 
And then we'll talk to Chris and Laura from LVCK Design. They worked on the new visual and brand identity or whatever it is that we're launching today. Go to ctpublic.org slash Colin and you can see what we look like now. Let's take a break. We'll be back. Let me say some thank yous. I think all of these people were technical producers of different parts of this episode. Cat Pastor, Eugene Amatruda, Dylan Rays, the producer of the whole episode, the mastermind, was Jonathan McPants. Lily Tyson is our senior producer. Okay, now you just heard me talking to Irene about what I thought rebranding was in 2021 and what I thought we were going to do. Now you're going to hear what we actually did We were so fortunate to work with two very patient people. Christopher King is the co-founder and creative director of environmental graphic design from the firm LVCK. And Laura Veracci is the co-founder and creative strategist of the same LVCK. They are the people who kind of oversaw this process with us. First of all, good to hear your voices again. Good to be here. Thank you, Colin. Good to be here. So... Maybe just we should start with what the concept means. We've been on the air. I've been on the air for the better part of 14 years now. I had a little logo that somebody upstairs <laughs> kind of dashed off for me in an hour or so. And not much of any other thought was ever given to how the show is perceived except by people who listen to it. So that's kind of where you came in, I think, to the process. So somebody begin the process of just talking about what we've been doing. Sure. We were, one of the things that we knew from the get-go was, might be a challenge was that we heard through the grapevine that your team, Colin, had some, you know, low level of trust with the whole idea of like a brand, why is it needed? Why do people, you know, put so much effort into this? And is it, you know, why can't it just be easier to get something to look like ourselves and represent us. And so we knew that building trust was going to be important in our process with you and your team. And we also knew that we needed to do our homework to build that trust. So we actually started listening to a lot of shows. (laughs) That's how we started our process. Yeah. So I, I should say that Laura and Chris listened to at least, I think, 10 shows, if not more, and then they changed their phone number and <laughs> deleted their email addresses. The person answering the phone wanted to take our falafel orders. So, so we knew something had happened. We hired a private detective and we tracked them down and we said, no, we want to continue with this process. But Chris, I will say that, first of all, you're absolutely right that we had sort of an attitude <laughs> that, that apparently was conveyed to you by other people in the building and you overcame that. But maybe you want to say a little bit more. Uh, about Well-founded. Yeah, I mean, there's plenty of things in this world, especially in the us on the you can walk down your supermarket and see like well why did why did that need to be rebranded and stuff so it's okay that you had some skepticism well also you know we we didn't come at it from the same perspective or lens as maybe like a lot of marketing or branding people do in fact we don't really even like think of it as branding we kind of always challenge ourselves to think of like this as an identity of 
of a, an institution or a person, place or thing? And, and what is that identity exactly? And, and how can we claim to know anything about that? I mean, an identity, your identity is a very special, sacred thing that you know well, but you may not know how to articulate. And we couldn't claim to know anything about it either until we kind of dug our heels in and got to speak with you. We had all those nice working sessions together. We got to listen to your show process as you're actually creating the shows. And we learned right off the bat how creative and sort of frenetic your ideas are just coming out of, of your bodies. You know, there's there's a real soul to the show and it was beyond you, Colin. It was like your whole team. So it became very obvious to us that there was kind of like high energy, high creativity. And right away to me, I started thinking about, you know, kind of music, what kind of music this sounds like. To me, it was very jazz-like what you guys were doing. You were riffing off things. It was not really planned in that you knew what you were going to say. You had concepts or, or thoughts, but had no idea how it was going to materialize. And to me, that that reminded me a lot of like some of the greatest jazz musicians. Well, I mean, so we do, we do have these meetings on Zoom where all the producers come together and some of the management people with me and you attended those. We should say one thing that Chris neglects to mention, Laura, is that you guys would sort of be there for the marketing part of the meeting and or the rebrand part of the meeting. And then maybe the plan was you were going to leave or you're going to sit there quietly. And we said, no, 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 no. <laughs> you're in the meeting now. You're going to help us figure out shows. And you guys were really great. I mean, when after the first time we did this together, I thought, well, how much would it cost just to have Laura and Chris come to our meetings for the next 10 years? But you guys <laughs> sort of got into it, right? It was really fun. Yeah, I think that was the most surprising element of our early work on this was that you wanted us to input like we were like our our normal approach is like we're listeners we're really good listeners but you wanted us to dive in and by doing that we actually got to know you and Jonathan and Lily so much more immediately and I think it sped up yeah, we exponentially. We had no idea. It. Yeah, we had no idea that that's how quickly we would all get to become friends and colleagues together as we were working with you, like kind of in the pit being creative together. And that was the level of trust that I think we wanted to have. I just think sometimes, you know, designers think that there's got to be this sort of prescribed process mm-hmm. that that is first and foremost. But for us, it's about it's about the team. It's about the people building that relationship. So you really know them. I mean, you really know what they're talking about and why they're saying the things they are. We're sort of yeah. we're sort of collectively like some kind of abused dog, you know. We were, we didn't trust you at first, but then you turned out to be nice and you scratched our heads a few times, and then we just wanted you to throw the ball with us. You know, we were very easy to win over <laughs> once once you guys really started to show that you genuinely did care about what you were doing and that meant a tremendous amount to us. Maybe Laura, you should also just say a little bit about what you wound up doing. You know, Chris said jazz. I actually feel like some of the decisions you wound up making aesthetically reflect that a little bit, but maybe say a little bit more about how you thought about what you were going to apply to us. Right. There's the show is about so many things and we, our challenge to ourselves was to create visuals that evoked the energy and the vibe Without being pictorial. Yeah, without being pictorial. I mean, that was really, we definitely knew that we did not want to rely on even symbols or graphics so much. Yeah. And then we also learned that, you know, you know, we thought, oh, well, Colin, it's your name. Like, you 
it's got to be about you. And then we learned after working with you and how much you cared that the whole, it was really about collaborative work and not just about you. And we backed off the idea of even using your, your sort of your mug <laughs> as a, as a part of the identity. And um, I think that really spells true for you. Um, yeah, it was, it's the name and the name is long. I mean, that's another just graphic <laughs> challenge. Your name is long. The Colin McEnroe show, how to make it, you know, dynamic and visually interesting in a square format for a podcast and a band, web banner, all those different instances. And, and we just tested out a lot of things and found that typography is always, you know, can be the driver for, for a visual identity to that can stand out. And also that made sense for your brand because your identity are, is about ideas and the words. And so the typeface that we chose has to be really hardworking in a fun and dynamic way. Yeah. And, you know, Chris, I'm so glad you said the, the thing about everybody, because first of all, I think it became clear to you eventually that I'm basically Ted Knight. You know, I mean, I'm just this person they send out there and the brains have to be someplace else. But I also I've, I've always defined this show as a group enterprise. To me, that's like really exciting. I, and for the most part, like I've been having to write various letters that are going to go out as part of this whole process. And I'm mostly using we and us because that's how I think of this show. It really is like a whole bunch of people and it is kind of a, you know, it's the Borg collective. We're all kind of feeding off of each other. But Chris, I, another thing about this, and I don't know how true this is across the board, but I bet it is. You know, it was interesting for us because, yeah, we... We have to think on a daily basis about what we're doing, but what we're doing is very task and day specific. We're trying to get a show done about tambourines or brainwashing or you know, whatever the show is that day. And we want it to be, we know there's sort of a signature to what we do. It's a little bit different. We always say, if we do the show our way, it'll be a good show. We just can't do it the way anybody else would do it. But I don't think we'd ever really had a conversation about what that particularly meant. And and maybe that's part of what you guys have to do generally is most people are kind of focused on just getting through the day. How are we going to get all this stuff done in a way that doesn't seem to betray who we are? But beyond that, having a kind of more categorical or kind of feeling or vibe-oriented conversation is maybe not something people do self-consciously all the time. Yeah, you know, I, I think Paul Rand, one of the great graphic designers of our time, he said that a logo derives its meaning from the quality of the thing that it symbolizes and not the other way around. So the very like sort of essence or the vibe, as you said, is what kind of the, the memorable part needs to be. It needs to be like sort of distinctive and different. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I feel the same way. And I there was a guy that I used to be fascinated by. I think he was Swiss. His name was Clotaire Rapai. And he talked about code, you know, that, you know, you, you look you look at something and you sort of know, you look at a Hummer and it's clearly not for moms and kids. You know, it's it has some other kind of purpose. And Laura, I feel like for us, you know, we're making the show, but the show is really ultimately intended for an audience. And that audience, you know, is going to have a set of reactions to it. And and for me, one of the things I, I, I wanted out of this was... Yes, a visual signature that would somehow or other communicate who we are. But I, I was hoping anyway that it would also reverberate very well with the existing audience. And that's not something that you could – we didn't give you a budget to go find that, <laughs> that out. But it, it probably is something that you thought about too. Like why do people listen to this show given the range of choices? Yeah, definitely. And I, I think that there was a aspect of 
nostalgia and eccentricity about the show that isn't in other shows. You know, you're sort of like the reverse Seinfeld, right? You're the show about everything. And how how do you kind of portray that in this kind of like smorgasbord of squares on the on the podcast menu? And you do that by being intriguing. You kind of have to create something that, well, one is recognizable. So your name was hugely important in that recognition, right? That's the sort of the 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 thing that we could use that's actually got real val- uh, cachet. cachet. Yeah. So if people can read your name, but also that if they want to get further, you're not giving them sort of some kind of picture or something that tries to claim that this is what the show is going to be about. It really is couldn't take you anywhere. Yes. And so thank you to both of you. We really all, all of us do consider you friends and wonderful people. And we'll recommend you to other pe- people who, like us, are very difficult to work with because obviously. <laughs> well, thank you so much. And we hope it spells lots of further success for you. Yeah. Right. 